You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the 100th episode of the Hayek Program podcast. From all of us at the Hayek Program, we extend our thanks to you for joining us on this intellectual journey throughout the years, and we look forward to many exciting conversations coming on future episodes of the podcast. In this episode, the conversation will focus on Dr. Peter Betke's latest book, The Struggle for a Better World. In The Struggle for a Better World, Dr. Betke explores how the social sciences, and political economy in particular, help us understand society and its institutions of governance. Betke advances an approach for understanding, articulating, and pursuing a coherent and consistent vision of a society of free and responsible individuals who may prosper through voluntary participation in the market and their communities. Becky advocates for liberal cosmopolitanism grounded in the principles of equality, justice, and liberty, and the basic recognition that all people are dignified equals as the best hope for a better world. Dr. Peter Becky is Vice President for Advanced Study and Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics as well as the BB&T Professor for the Study of Capitalism at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a University Professor of Economics and Philosophy at George Mason University. He is joined in this conversation by Dan Rothschild, the Executive Director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Dan, I'll turn it over to you now. Well, thanks, and, and Pete, it's great to be here with you, uh, especially on the 100th episode of the Hayek Program podcast. So we're, we're talking about your book, The Struggle for a Better World. And I wanna jump right in on that title. Um, the word struggle is not something that I am used to hearing from uh, market liberal academics. It's something that I kind of associate with, with uh, Marxian class struggle. So yeah. let, let's just talk about the title. Why are you talking about this as a struggle for a better world? Uh, well, first, thanks a lot uh, for having me on and also for uh, creating such a great environment for us to all work and teach in um, here at, at uh, Mercatus and, and George Mason. Um, I chose the title struggle because I mean it in two senses. One of them is that uh, as a scholar, I'm struggling constantly to try to take different bites of an apple to understand the world around me. The uh, essays that make up the book are reflections from that I had the opportunity to do that were addresses given to various different professional societies over the last two decades. Um, and they are summaries of like my different research efforts to understand the, the nature of the market, to understand the interaction of the market and political economy, to understand the role of a vibrant society um, uh, in, in making up for a free and prosperous uh, commonwealth. And so I am struggling as a scholar to try to figure things out. But in that, it's also the hope that we can continue from that understanding to get greater refinements of what are the institutional preconditions for a uh, liberal project. So starting with Adam Smith and the liberal, the liberal project of liberty, equality, and justice, 
How do we then uh, continue to refine that, improve it, restate it, push it forward? Because it's never, ever been any place adopted in full form. So there is no past to look back to and say, oh, that was the great liberal age. It's always, you know, you have to recognize that in each of those earlier manifestations, there were gapping, gaping holes in the project that injustice and, and structural inequalities were built into the system because of remnants of power and privilege. And what we're trying to do is get to a system that exhibits neither discrimination nor domination, right? That project, that fulfillment of that project. And so we're struggling constantly and we win the battle through struggles, struggles for recognition of our fundamental humanity and, and pushing forward. And so uh, that's, that's the two senses in which uh, the term struggle is used here. Um, and, uh, and you're correct to see that the, the struggle term that is used invokes a lot of that same spirit that is involved in revolutionary projects. Uh, because I view the liberal project as an emancipatory project. I think that's the correct way to view the liberal project. It's an emancipation from the dogma of the church, from the subjugation of the crown, from the violence of the sword, from the drudgery of the plow, uh, from the bonds of slavery, and from the vested interest of the mercantilist class. And we're trying to overcome all of those. And each stage, those are hard fought battles that need to be won. So yeah, let's. I, I, I want to dig in on what you're talking about here is a, a radical emancipatory doctrine. So um, this this strikes me as as really sensible that if you went back 100, 200 years, you talked about liberalism with people as a as a process, not just as a state of being, that it would seem pretty radical and, and in a lot of ways something that would challenge a lot of vested interests. How did we get to this point that 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 I've certainly grown up most of my lifetime in, where liberalism is just kind of seen as um, the the, the milk toast water in in which we swim? rather than something that really is uh, anti-conservative, something that, that really does challenge uh, vested interests and, and those with power. I, I guess, in other words, how did liberalism, this, this radical emancipatory doctrine get so boring? Well, one, I think that uh, we, um, it wasn't boring to our uh, grandparents and parents. So there was a great renewal of liberal thought after World War II. It started as a small remnant. You have Hayek and uh, writing the idea of the, of the intellectuals and socialism. And he's pointing out a very important aspect, which I think a lot of people have misunderstood about that essay, which is that it's about resting control of the tacit presuppositions of political economy. Um, these are the, the, uh, the the, the givens that we take, we don't even question them about what's going on. And what he points out in that essay is that the success of the, of the growth of government folks, the progressives and whatnot, was because they wrested control of those tacit presuppositions. So what does it mean to you know, achieve justice? Well, it would mean X, Y, and Z, and the government's responsible for doing it. And so what Hayek's challenge to a new generation of scholars was, we must make this task intellectually exciting again. And I think that 
we, we sometimes misunderstand because we're younger, how exciting it was for people like Milton Friedman and for James Buchanan when they were younger, right? Especially a Jim Buchanan who devoted his career. So Friedman kind of bifurcated his career. He had a scientific career and then he had a career as a public intellectual, right? And he goes in and out of those things. That's different than Hayek. Hayek's ventures into institutions and liberal institutions and understanding that is because the economics profession had lost sight of the institutions that make exchange and interaction possible, property, contract, and consent. So to Hayek, writing the Constitution of Liberty is a natural outflow of people not understanding like what's going on in the pure theory of capital. Right? You know, kind of thing. To Friedman, you have a, a bifurcation. You have Milton Friedman, the consumption function, monetary history of the United States, but then you have Milton Friedman, capitalism and freedom, and free to choose. But I mean, Milton Friedman is a uniquely gifted intellectual. And so he was able to move in and out of those two worlds very seamlessly. Jim Buchanan is more like Hayek. And what he did was he devoted his career to studying the institutional infrastructure within which democratic processes are played out and market processes are played out. And so to him, these interactions between liberalism and economics are going to be very natural, not bifurcated ever. And that research program that Buchanan started a Virginia political economy and public choice, that was really exciting. The Kosian project on law and economics was really exciting. But those were all 1950. <laughs> Developments, I'm getting to your, your point in a, in a second. So between 1950 and 1980, these research programs were new, exciting, and everything like that. When I was a graduate student, undergraduate student, I remember reading uh, uh, Henri Lepage's book called Tomorrow Capitalism, right? In the mid 1970s, 75, 76, 77, 78, I go to college in 1978, uh, right? So I'm reading these things in 1979, 1980 or whatever. So they're like four or five years old. But you look at all the books that came out around 1976 to 1977, 78. It was so exciting. I mean, it was like revolutionary to take the economic way of thinking and apply it to everything. And, and you know, and to address these issues, you have the, the Vietnam War is just ending. The sort of racial tensions of the 60s are sort of. Uh, you know, people think that there's been victories on that front and, 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 and somewhat. Uh, so the tensions and everything, but we're in a stagnating economy. And now these economists come along and they excite it. The problem is, is that after the fall of communism, I think we became too complacent. We believe that we had already had the arguments. So from, from the late 1970s to 1990, it's a period where all these ideas are new in some sense, they're, 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 they've been developed since the 1950s. They're now in, in the broader conversation. People are talking about them. The biggest social experiment of the 20th century is fraying apart. And in 1989, the people just say, hey, look, we won, right? And so they stopped working on it. And they thought it was all about trying to implement policy. So now your generation, right, comes along uh, and what you have is from 1990 to 2020 is you don't have as many people investing in the fundamental ideas like you were between 1950 and 1975. 
And so, of course, it seems like, yeah, been there, done that. You know, it's not even Friedman says we won the battle of ideas, but we've lost the battle of implementation. And so then everyone's trying to figure out who are my bedfellows in politics, right? Because the nature of politics is to get a minimum winning coalition. All right. That, that's how you win a game, right? That's how you win the political game. I need a minimum winning coalition. And then you wake up one day and you realize the people in your coalition are like abhorrent to you. <laughs> they believe things that you would never want to believe, right? And so therefore your ideas, these radical ideas get associated with the bedfellows rather than their core ideas. And so now you need to, you know, the youth thinks it's all hollow, you know, and, and, and it doesn't, you know, they, they've grown up in a period of a permanent war economy. They've been saddled in debt under a promise that, you know, uh, they have militarization of the police, you know, uh, and, and their economic future seems, you know, somewhat daunted. And then you get a big hairy thing like COVID-19 hits them, right? And the whole thing goes in suspended animation, right? And so why would they have optimism about the future? And so the task for real radical liberals today is to take like what Lavoie was trying to do in national economic planning, what is left in that last chapter and rewrite that for the generation today to get them excited about the fulfillment of this project, not the belief that the project had been done and needs to be just implemented. It, it's a, it's a, not a marketing problem. It's a thinking problem. And to me, that's the key thing because in the 19, in the early 2000s, almost all of our think tanks and other groups thought it was a marketing problem. If I could just have slicker videos, if I could just, you know, they all listen to Jonathan Haidt. If I can, you know, if I can tell a better story then all of a sudden, it, but the reality is it's a thinking problem. We are not thinking seriously enough about these fundamental problems that are layovers from discrimination and domination of power and privilege of vested interests. But then we're surprised when we look up and the consequences of vested interest are all around us, which is that we have monopoly powers that are protected by the state. Right. And there and, and, and it's creating all kinds of gumming up of the of the of the labor markets, you know. And so anyway, I, I, I'm going on too far. But that's my view is that we became complacent. And I, what we need to do is, is shock people into non-complacency. I, I, I want to come back to a lot of that um, because you, you've touched on what, what are some of the most important issues facing, I think, economics as a discipline and the liberal project more broadly. Uh, you know, this, 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 this volume is a, is a collection of, of speeches and presentations that you've given to professional associations. So I want to talk about the profession of economics, what it means to be an economist. Uh, it seems to me that in some ways, a, a big part of your project is about lowering the status of economics as it is practiced by uh, uh, predominantly within that field today and rethinking what is the a proper role for economists in society, which is one that's much more along the, the lines of, of uh, the Buchananite tradition rather than the, the, the tradition of, of uh, economists as a, as a priestly caste. So kind of how did things go wrong in the economics profession from your perspective? And, and uh, how did we uh, put economists into the exalted position that they occupy, especially in public policy debates? So one, the rents are really good. <laughs> so, 
so if you look around, I mean, uh, you know, if um, if economists had the same of the status that I would like to to have economists have, we would not have as many pennies as we have. So don't listen to me too much. You know, I, I like the status. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, the Great Depression happened. Um, and uh, the belief was is that you could train uh, experts to make sure that some problem like that never could occur again. And we're gonna entrust power to them. You have um, um, the development of, a, of an economics, uh, which is transformed from a tool of social understanding. So the, rather than a tool for the struggle of social understanding, it's now a tool for social control. And that social control is gonna be guided by utilitarians, right? So they're gonna focus on basically trying to devise those policies which yield the greatest good for the greatest number. They're gonna engineer that. And the where, place where you're taught how to engineer that is at the elite institutions. So they're elitists, engineers, utilitarians and they are um, not trying to struggle in the same way that John Stuart Mill was struggling or John Baptiste Say was struggling or Adam Smith was was struggling to understand the wealth and poverty of nations they have a different task um, they're going to, uh, and, and that, that task and the tools that they have, which is provided mainly by, uh, you know, modern uh, development of, of models that are then sorted based on sophisticated statistical analysis, gives them their high status uh, of doing that. And to play that game, you actually have to be quite smart. So there's a natural weeding out thing that that basically uh, ensures that you know you get uh, you know Paul Samuelson doing this not Willy Wonka or something right and so there's a kind of a smartness an obvious smartness Larry Summers you know you listen to him talk he's smooth he's very you know uh, um, he's been everywhere confident you know you know I, I've been in charge I know he's like they're very general like you know people uh, sometimes it's arrogant, obviously, uh, you know, to people, there's a concern about that. And, uh, but nevertheless, you know, at the end of the day, they all turn around and they go back to the same people all the time. Right. Uh, and it's because they are the masters of that, that, that task, that, that, um, you know, job that they do and economics, um, needs to be, um, you know, pulled off of its pedestal a little bit. But if I could just, you know, give one last thing, Hayek tried to make this warning in his Nobel Prize address. So in the, uh, the cocktail party or the dinner the night before, he had to give a toast. And when he gave the toast, he told his hosts that if he was asked whether or not they should have a Nobel Prize in economics, he would have said no because no economist should be given this status of being able to, you know, pontificate from on high that they are, you know. And then in his Nobel Prize address, he makes these stunning claims. He says, 
you know, one, we have to recognize that we've made a mess of things. It's the mid 70s, they're suffering from stagflation throughout the world, uh, the Western world. And, and he says, look, we made a mess of things. We made a mess of things because we developed a false model of science to derive our discipline. This false model of science puts us at the edge of being charlatans. Um, uh, if we are going to save the science, we must expose the charlatanism and move in a different direction. And then he says that if we don't do that, we're going to instead turn the economist into a threat uh, to his fellow citizens, right? And a destroyer of civilization. Thank you very much. I really like the medal, uh, you know, like that. And, 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 you know, his Nobel lecture is the only one to get a revise and resubmit. <laughs> so, so, you know, economists don't want to hear that. That's 1974. How many people since that time? So think about Jim Buchanan. Jim Buchanan stands up at his Nobel Prize address and in the first paragraph says, economists must cease pro-offering advice as if to a benevolent despot, okay? Then you go to Eleanor Ostrom and when she finally gives her Nobel Prize address, she ends it by saying that, you know, uh, if from her long polycentric journey, what's the most important thing that we've learned? That you can't have a benevolent overseer trying to nudge people, but instead empower the people from the bottom up, right? But those messages fall, where do they fall when we hit something like COVID, right? What do we get? We get a long line of people going there to offer advice as if to a benevolent despot. We demand central control rather than bottom-up solutions to any of our kind of issues that are going on. And what are we seeing as a consequence of that? Well, all the things that public choice and Austrian and Bloomington school people predicted you would see, right? So you have uh, imperfect individuals operating in imperfect institutions, responding to the incentives that they face. And what do you get? You get the scandals that are associated now with Cuomo, uh, right? You get the, the frustrations that people have in, in uh, different states with the vaccine rollout, uh, you know, all these kind of things like that. It, it, we live in an imperfect world. So I'm not saying that, again, that there's an economic solution that you can wave your arm like a Jedi mind trick and say, oh, vaccines will now be all distributed across everyone, you know, like that tomorrow. They won't. But at the same time, we're not addressing the fundamental problems of knowledge and of power that are associated when you try to centralize a answer to all of our problems in the world. And I, so I don't think we're gonna, Hayek's message from his Nobel address, Buchanan's message from his Nobel address and Eleanor's message from her Nobel address still hasn't been absorbed into the DNA of economists being trained. And so, we still have a task before us. There, there, there's also the question of incentives on the political end. You've got a, a delightful quote in here on page 125 from uh, Luigi Singales. Keynesianism has conquered the hearts and minds of politicians and ordinary people alike because it provides a theoretical justification for irresponsible behavior. So, so it's not just that there's the supply of economists that are able to do this, there's this demand for the services. And, and uh, be, by putting economists on this pedestal as, uh, uh, as, as the clerisy, they provide politicians with the excuse for when things go wrong while well, I was listening to the best available experts. Uh, and it allows them to, to outsource a lot of that, I think. Biden actually made a claim uh, early on uh, in his administration that, uh, uh, the best economists tell me X, right? The best economists, and this is about the minimum wage thing. 
So the best economists tell me X about like that I should be doing this, $15, right, or whatever. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's papers published in the NBER and other places like pointing out that this is not actually how you improve the, the, the fate of, of the least advantaged. And so, you know, we, we listen to those economists that we like, we imbue them with tremendous stature, uh, and then they rule. But what we don't have is we don't have a council of philosophical advisors. We don't have a council of sociological advisors. We have a council of economic advisors. We have a national, uh, you know, economics, you know, council. We have, uh, you know, a chairman of the Fed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, a secretary of the treasury and they play this over, they're what we call in economics, big players and they play a very big role. You know, one of the most successful economists as a teacher is, is Stanley Fisher. He's trained, I think, a hundred central bankers in his career. I mean, just think about that. Like if, if I was someone now, this is no knock on Stanley Fisher because we have different preferences, different attitudes. But if I trained, I, I had a lot of PhD students. If any of my PhD students went and became a central banker, I would send them a condolence card. Right. I, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's just a different, you know, a different mindset about what you're trying to do as an economist. And I think that, uh, you know, going back to your question about my title, I want to have PhD students that want to join the struggle as a scholar and simply want to try to understand the world and make sense of the world around them. And, and I, I think that there's four pillars of economics, none of which is social engineering. There is truth and light. Uh, there is beauty and awe. There is hope and there is compassion. And those are the four pillars of economics. And in none of those am I trying to orchestrate a particular outcome um, or an in-rule game. I mean, in the hope, we're looking at public and private entrepreneurship. And that includes changing the structural rules of the game. So I get that that is like a policy change, but it's more like politics rather than policy, um, if, if we can allow that subtle distinction. Um, and so it's more like institution, institutional innovations um, rather than, than direct like tax or subsidy kind of ideas. It's about how we would go about collecting taxes or what purpose taxes serve rather than the idea of a particular tax you know, on, on an idea. And so I think that there, that mindset is slightly different, um, but very, very not, not very popular. <laughs> so we have to fight for it. And I think it's the core of economics. So going back, so like the kind of economics I practice, I would argue is closer to what Adam Smith argued we should be doing, or David Hume, or John Baptista Say, or John Stuart Mill, or maybe even Alfred Marshall, right? But it's certainly not the kind of economics that Keynes or Tobin or Samuelson or, you know, uh, Solo or Stiglitz practiced later on. And so I think that that's it's, So there is a there's a there's a logic to my madness in these in these essays, because it's developing this idea of a main line of economics that goes all the way back to Adam Smith and continues up to Vernon Smith that focuses on this, this different kind of role of the economist. 
And there's various different applications of it, which I try to, to give in the different talks that you see there. And so, but it's, it's, it's maybe the main line, but it's not particularly followed at the moment. And so we have to fight harder and harder for it to be, to get a hearing at the table. I want to delve more into this, this question of, of the liberal order that, that we were talking about earlier, and especially this, this question of justice. You, you say on page 208, uh, Buchanan, James Buchanan postulated that critical to the failure to continually inspire was that the classical liberal list of liberty, prosperity, and peace was incomplete because it omitted justice. So, so as you were saying earlier, this isn't just a marketing issue. This is a, a real substantive issue as to why liberalism has lost a lot of the, the, the imaginative potential that it had in a previous generation. Yeah. Why is it that this question of justice, which 150, 200 years ago was, was a, a big part of the liberal intellectual tradition, why has this fallen by the wayside? And what do we need to do to revive uh, thinking about the, the role of justice in liberalism and the way that liberalism produces just institutions and uh, just outcomes? So the first thing is that, again, this is, is, is maybe too methodological, um, but economics in the wake of this transformation of a tool from social understanding to a tool of social control, in order to do that, it became institutionally antiseptic. So institutions disappeared from economics in a weird way. They became part of the background. And when they become part of the background, they become forgotten if, if that, that in the evolution of things. So David Hume could start by saying that, you know, civilization cannot get off the ground without respect of property, contract, and consent. And, but yet, you know, in the, in the post-1950 era, when Armin Alchin starts to emphasize property rights again, people are like, oh, wow, there's property rights economics. We never even thought about that, you know? Or, you know, Bastiat had the candlestick makers, you know, petitioning the government uh, because of the unfair competition from the sun. And then Gordon Tulloch in 1960 comes along and says, you know, there's this thing called rent seeking where, you know, businesses lobby the government to get special protections. We're like, oh my God, how innovative is that? But, you know, Bastiat already told us in the greatest satire that that happens or, right. And so there's a issue of rediscovering the institutions. And when you rediscover those institutions, you rediscover things like what are the characteristics of institutions which actually allow them to be operating. So go back to Hume again. You know, part of the issue there is, is the stability of possession, all right? Uh, transference by consent and the keeping of promises, right? So think about those things. Those things are all tied up into our rules of just conduct in the way that Pete and Dan interact with each other, all right? And, and this kind of stuff. And so that was all lost in this long march towards scientism. And so now we're trying to rediscover it. And we have to recognize that institutions that are not general can in fact embody privileges, which empower some at the expense of others. So we have to start thinking about what is the nature of the rule of law, not a law of rules, but the actual rule of law. What does it mean to have generality, non-discriminatory politics? where these rules hold, if they hold for one, they hold for all. And so we treat one another, uh, you know, one another as our dignified equals 
And this, now we start in, now once we've done that, we're all in a whole bunch of interactions with philosophers about the nature of liberal justice and, and the nature of the legal system and all that. And you can't do economics unless you actually pay attention to those things because those rules will dictate the logic of choice and the, more importantly, the situational logic of the way we play out. So economics is this tremendous tool of reasoning. We have the logic of choice, which is the marginal benefit, marginal cost calculus of the individual. And then we have, we throw those individuals that are engaged in that marginal benefit, marginal cost calculation into various institutional situations, which change the structure of those curves. They either, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, lower the marginal benefits or raise the marginal costs and, and therefore our behavior changes. So we need the purest logic of choice and the situational logic with inside institutions. And once we identify that, we can then start to examine the processes by which we interact with one another. And once we start there, we're into the world of the rules of just conduct. All of that from economics, when economics moved from political economy to economics, it got lost. And so now the move in the late 20th century, beginning 21st century, is to get economics and its related discipline, political economy and moral philosophy, back center stage. Because that's the way we're going to do better economics, <laughs> and from my, my opinion. So that means that we have to not engage in Jedi mind tricks, right? Which is the conceptual way in which economists examine things. So I look at externalities in the world, and one of them is there are no externalities, right? And so then, you know, we, property rights have solved it all, right? Kind of idea. And instead, what we have to recognize is that there's serious problems in the world. There's problems of structural inequality. There's problems of discriminatory, discrimination within the criminal justice system, which has long and drawn out consequences for individuals. Um, so just a little factoid. Um, this was an essay, an article published uh, you know, in, in criminal justice ethics about a decade ago, and 54% uh, of African-American males under the age of 25 have been arrested for nonviolent, non-traffic related. So this is mainly underage drinking and drugs, okay? 54%. 49% of white males have, of that same age group have been arrested at some point. Or, but here's the problem. The 49% of white males get community service. They get, uh, you know, uh, second chances, third chances, things like that. The African-American males don't. And so then they end up by having to check on a box the rest of their life. I was arrested. The, 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 the white counterparts don't. That's a reality. That's an empirical reality of our system. And, uh, and Lynn Ostrom talked about this a lot in her riding with cars with boys kind of discussion when she was studying community policing, because under community policing, you would know the person. So you would see a 17 year old Dan Rothschild drinking a beer with his friends and the cop would pull over and say, Dan, chucklehead, get in the car, bring Dan home, bring him up to the parents, hold him by the ear and say, look, you got to watch out for your kid. He's hanging around with a bunch of coconuts. And so Dan would then not, you know, get grounded for two weeks or whatever. But when we uh, solidified and centralized police, 
police then were responsible for bureaucratic outputs. And one of those bureaucratic outputs is arrests. So now they're policing in areas that they don't live in. They're policing in areas where they don't know the population. And so instead of taking Dan home to his parents, they take Dan to the central booking office. And then, you know, parents have to come in or whoever is around come in and say, oh yeah, I got to bail Dan out. But now Dan is in the system. Whereas in the previous system, he's never in the system. He's in the parents' hands. And so Lynn was talking about what is the, what does communities really want out of their police services, right? They want public safety. They want thriving communities. Which one delivers those things is, is, a, is a big debate. And we're not having those kind of conversations, right? They're, they're both public safety institutions, but one does it one way, the other one does it another way. And what's the consequences of the different ways? So when we think back about what a, a, a liberal judge, the, the liberal plan is, a, is, is for liberty, equality, and justice. That's, that's how Adam Smith lists it. The liberal plan is for liberty, equality, and justice. What is that plan for us today? Liberty, equality, and justice in the world that we live in today, when we recognize that we're one another's dignified equals, what is, the, what is the, the burden of the institutions? What is the burden of the way we interact with each other so that we can realize that liberal plan? To me, and, and here, you know, uh, you know, this is contested, I think that it points towards a cosmopolitan liberalism. So that's what I argue for in the book, is, is a, 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 an embracement of cosmopolitan liberalism which includes you know, the, the recognition of all kinds of rights that individuals have in their own autonomy and, and interactions with others. Um, so that's gonna force us to, to have a world which is more porous in its borders, more, you know, all, all that kind of thing. We're citizens of one another in the world. We interact with one another. We have all kinds of intersectionality, uh, as they would say today. That's all part of the beauty of the system, right? Is this, uh, this, this tremendous, uh, uh, you know, montage of, of human freedom and dignity, so yeah. And, and that requires, as, as you say, democratic ways of relating to one another. Uh, it's, it's really striking to me how much we've, we've, we've if, I think if you ask most people, what is democracy, they would say something about voting. They've taken the, the kind of form, the, the, the formal aspects of this, and we've just denuded our, our society and our larger public discourse in the way that we uh, talk to children about their rights and responsibilities as citizens in a, a liberal democracy and just reduced it to um, uh, oh. the, the, the stuff that's, that's actually least important. So, yeah. so I, 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 I do want to get back to this question of how do we get people thinking about relating to one another in a democratic way as dignified equals. Um, but, but I want to get on something that you touched on in, in, in just a moment ago, and it's on this question of, of public administration. You know, one of the, the distinctions that you draw out in your book is the difference between uh, uh, governments that is something that is done to us and governing is something that we do with one another which relies on drawing out this distinction between government and governance, which is, uh, again, something that has just been um, institutionally collapsed in our public debate uh, into the form of government rather than thinking broadly about uh, what happens here, about how it actually works. So what, does, uh, what is the appropriate kind of classical liberal way to think about public administration 
And what do we need to do to begin moving public administration back to the field as it was practiced and considered before it became uh, the technocratic discipline that it is today? So, I, I mean, this is a, a huge task. Um, the way that I think about it um, is uh, one, you have to have serious conversation about the scale and scope of government, like what you think those responsibilities of government are. Um, and that requires political theory and that gets back to our justice issues earlier uh, and moral philosophical issues. Um, so we cannot do public finance without first doing public political philosophy. So economists need to embrace again their broader notion in the moral sciences um, because we have to address this issue about what is the scale and scope of government. As a classical liberal, I believe that the appropriate line there is that government should do those things and only those things that private citizens and communities cannot do for themselves or cannot do well for themselves and government can do well for them and do achieving that. Each of those is an empirical, it requires empirical examination that individuals and communities can't do it, that if they try to do it, they can't do it well and that government itself can do it. So those are scientific research questions. People should be exploring in history in, in contemporary history, the examination of those three angles. But let's assume that we have some you know, answers about that. Then the question is, how am I gonna pay for it? And how is it gonna be produced? And that raises all kinds of other questions about the machinery of government, right? And at what level is it gonna be produced, right? So we have to follow what I would call a benefit principle in taxation, which is we have to tie the revenue decision and the expenditure decision together. Otherwise, we get what Buchanan calls the fiscal commons. So the easiest way to explain the fiscal commons is imagine that the three of us who are on this call uh, decide to go out for dinner after this, and we agree we're going to split the bill equally. Okay. Now on the margin, we get an extra cocktail or we get an extra, you know, what do we pay the full price if we choose to get an, you know, a, uh, an extra, you know, thing of scotch or another cannoli at the end of dinner. No, we split it three ways. So I'm going to consume more of that than I otherwise would have, but so is Matt, so are you. And so then our bill is bigger than we ever could, you know, have imagined if we just split it equally. So what we want to do is we want to tie the revenue decision and the expenditure decision very close to one another. All right. We want to make we try to mimic the tax system to make sure that individuals are getting the benefits from the public good that they're paying in the taxes. So that's the benefit principle. We want to match that. And then we want to match the size of the of the decision unit to the externality it's addressing. So I don't need the federal government to collect my garbage. But, you know, maybe my municipality decides that it's not going to have a private entity, but it's going to collect garbage. Well, then my local taxes would go to that. But my local government can't maybe provide, you know, uh, defense against a nuclear attack. So then maybe I need the federal government to do that. So I have a principle of subsidiarity. So I have the benefit principle. I have the subsidiarity principle. All these things have to then be the, the conversation in public finance. And then even that, okay, even all of that, we have to understand that the way we coordinate activity in the developing of allocating scarce resources 
among competing ends, which is what's going to be involved even in public administration, is that we have to have a mechanism that moves us from desirable to feasible to viable, okay? And that in the commercial transaction is provided by the tool of monetary economic calculation, all right? And that monetary economic calculation is made possible by property prices and profit and loss. And so by necessity, when I move into public administration, I am no longer relying on property prices and profit and loss. So I have to come up with some other proxy for it. And what are those mechanisms that will allow me to be able to answer those questions? So we, the, the point about the contrast in public administration between bureaucratic and democratic administration is that democratic administration pushes those burdens and those mechanisms of governance more and more down to the people that are being that are governing with so it's more polycentric more overlapping competing jurisdictions more citizen engagement whereas bureaucratic fits in more with the earlier conversation about the trained expert who stands immune from democratic processes and instead and the messy process of democracy so make no mistake about it i'm embracing messiness in the in the democratic ways of public administration there are going to be errors there's going to be missteps there's going to be you know waste and whatnot in the system but it's going to be responsive to its citizenry whereas in the other method it it's going to be you know bureaucratic hierarchical trained experts monopoly experts but it's not going to be responsive to its citizens and therefore when the monopoly expert makes an error all right, there's no correction mechanism that kicks in. This one is constantly correcting, constantly being disciplined. But, you know, that's the contrast in the way to think about. But, but I understand that it puts a tremendous burden on the citizenry to be self-governors. And part of the problem goes back to what you were talking before about our complacency in our complacency, we have not continued to refine our skills as self-governors. So this is why we need to work on getting young people to understand the, the, the burdens that are required upon them to be self-governors. And that this is a wonderful journey, not just a burden. It's how they self-actualize themselves rather than infantile themselves right and 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 you know you need to drive aspirations and the idea that they can become something that they currently aren't by you know their own uh grit and all of these things so this is this is the hope this is the hope so and 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 that's uh that, that that's a great point that we have to think about these governing uh these issues of governance as something that is generative not just something that is costly to our time and, and especially when you've got a professional managerial class that is used to outsourcing so much of our lives from the people who clean our house and maintain our lawns to the people who educate our children it just kind of becomes natural that we would uh outsource the the running of our democratic systems to the so-called experts especially when We've got so many people who uh, uh, have claimed and have had claims for them for, for more than a generation, uh, this, this level of expertise. And let, so, me, let me be clear about something on this, because sometimes people get confused about what I just said. But uh, when I go to a baseball game, okay, 
I want to see Matt Scherzer pitch. I don't want to see Dan Rothschild go out from the stadium and say, hey, it's my turn to pitch. And, I, got, I got a great 35-mile-an-hour fastball seat. And, 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 and democratic society says I should be able to pitch. I, I understand the role of expertise and authority, but it's always in a democratic society earned, not granted, right? On tap, not on top. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so there. And, and I think that's important to always keep in mind because – we, we value people of extreme talent and skill and, and, and we trust them. And, and, and in communities, as you know, we'll have people who will rise to the top and be the one who's the, you know, look at, our, look at the work that we did in, in New Orleans, right? There were focal individuals, right? Who became focal points. They were leaders. There were pivotal people at pivotal times that the community rallied around, but the community in, gave, or gave them the authority. Not, they didn't come in and say, government says that I am now, you know, telling you what to do. So it's not, again, it's not, uh, you know, mandates and restrictions. It's like recommendations and, and adjustments in a, a, of behavior, right? And then people can govern themselves guided by the information that they have about how to best pursue their lives in the, in the best way that they can. And I think that's the kind of society I'd want to see us tilt more towards than one which requires us to submit. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's actually uh, a, a great segue into the, the last part of the conversation that I wanted to have, which is the question on, on renewing liberalism. So you talk some in the, the last chapter about how do we think about these questions of expertise? And it strikes me that, that in just the last few years, we've gone from this technocratic mindset where experts can basically, in a top-down fashion, centrally planned large swaths of society to this uh, populist challenge that basically says the experts know absolutely nothing. And in its more articulate forms, it's that the, you know, the wisdom of the people is superior to the wisdom of the experts or the wisdom of tradition. And in its less refined version, it's just kind of a, a project to tear things down uh, to own the experts as, as they would say on Twitter. So, so you point out on, on page 233, we find ourselves in a strange position where the populists are critiquing expert rule, but believe that the experts, but believe what the experts told them were the problems that plagued society and resulted in their disillusionment with the promise of progress. So that really stuck with me as, as we're thinking about this, this challenge of the bedfellows that, that we've kind of woken up to, where liberals have seen that all of a sudden we're associated, at least in the popular mind, with populists. So what do we need to do to, I mean, you, you've already taken a, a leadership role in this when, with your leadership in the Mont Pelerin Society and elsewhere. What do we need to do to untether the liberal project from the way that it is conceived in the popular mind as being some kind of conservative project or some kind of uh, even worse populist project? And, and what role is there going to be for liberals surrounded by people with far too much faith and expertise and central planning on one side and on the other side, a, a, a belief that, that uh, basically no one can do anything right? So I guess a big, big question, and I certainly, I'm just going to take a stab at it. It's part of the thing that I'm struggling thinking about. And this is me struggling as a scholar, as opposed to, you know, struggling for active for a better world, but hopefully as a scholar, understanding more will then be an input. But the first thing I'd say is that we have to recognize that politics is downstream from culture. So rather than worrying about 
the minimum winning coalitions in the world that we live in today, we have to actually address the cultural institutions and the tacit presuppositions that exist in the current cultural institutions of higher education, media, uh, the church, uh, you know, all these various different uh, areas in the in in, in the, the the you know knowledge products basically. So we have to recognize culture. Politics is downstream from culture. So now, if I'm going to engage in the culture, one of the things I need to do is I need to really, really listen to people and what their concerns are, and recognize that you begin a conversation where someone is not where you would hope that they would be. And you're not there to uh, ex explain to them why they're wrong. You're there to engage in mutual learning with them about how to address the serious fundamental puzzles that exist. So one, we get rid of the winning, minimum winning coalitions. And if we're standing next to people we find abhorrent, because of our current arrangements, we walk away from that and we make it known that those are not part of our of our agenda, right? I'm not, I, I don't, that's not who I want to interact with. I then start a conversation where you know people are rather than where I think they should be, and try to mutually learn. Like I can learn from them, like what the what I'm being blind to, what concerns that I'm missing. And I think that that then means that I need to also, besides listening, I have to actually recognize the role that civility plays in a vibrant society. So in that last chapter, I draw on some work on civility and the distinction between what we call ideological politi uh, politics, um, you know, machine politics, and then responsible politics. And what, is it, what does it take to get us to avoid ideological politics and machine politics and move us to responsible politics? And that requires, I think, polycentricism, but at the highest levels of, of governance, we need to have extreme civility and moderation. And you have more rancor at the lower levels. So when, when the divisions, like if you study the Pew, you know, uh, uh, opinions on political divisiveness right now, the divisiveness in this society is in the center at the moment and rather than at the localities. Uh, but, it, it, but it has to be reversed. And we have to work in a way to sort of, you know, get people to understand that aspect of the importance of civility in being able to uh, promote uh, the kind of public conversations that we need uh, to address these issues of liberty, equality, and justice, in, in my view. And so um, a populist figure that is populist because they mobilize anger rather than mobilizing hope is going to be particularly problematic for our society being able to go forward. So if you find that you end up by, you know, uh, being motivated more by anger than you are by uh, love, you're, you know, this sounds trite, but 
if anger is the reason which is motivating you to, to, to do these things, you, you might have a more difficult time trying to have a liberal order uh, because the, the anger, I mean, again, I don't want to, I use Jedi mind trick. I don't want to, you know, go total Yoda, you know, you know, uh, fear leads to hate, hate leads to the dark side kind of thing like that. But there is a kind of a, a truism to the idea that uh, what we need to do as liberals is we need to show the promise of a society of free and responsible individuals who live and, and construct, you know, uh, caring communities and, uh, you know, can, can prosper in a market and commercial transactions. So peace and prosperity are not just hollow promises, but something that people can buy into, especially those who are currently the most out of favor in the world, the least advantage, those who are dispossessed, that the greatest freedoms can come from opening up commercial opportunities for themselves to lift their families and themselves out of their, their dire circumstances. And in order to do that, you gotta go back to that liberal project, the emancipatory project. You have to get away from dogma. You gotta get away from subjugation. You gotta get away from drudgery. You gotta get away from bonds of slavery. You gotta get away from the vested interest. And in our current society, we live in a massive rent-seeking society. We live in a modern mercantilistic society. Adam Smith's book was written against the mercantilist society of his time. Imagine how strong the argument would have to be against the mercantilist society of our time. And, and this is what we need to, to, to do. And, uh, uh, the, and the last thing I'd say, I start the book with an epic, uh, you know, a, a quote from Hayek about the tacit presuppositions of political economy. And as I was doing these essays over the years, this idea of the tacit presuppositions, which is something I first heard from Buchanan when I was a graduate student um, talking about East and Central Europe. Um, and now I become more and more persuaded by it. And I think it's, a, it's, it's the key concept, which is this goes to the idea of, of the culture that politics is downstream from culture. We have to change the conversation in our society. And we have to change the way that individuals perceive the hope for change in our society. And in order to do that, we have to converse with them with respect and recognize their fundamental dignity. And when, we're, when we assume the role of the expert that can talk not with them, but to them, we're in trouble. And so I think we need to train our teachers to be different. We need to train our scholars to be different. And if we do that, then we might have a hope that the conversation over the next generation will slowly and steadily change in a way towards a more civil and productive public discourse. And that's, that's as a scholar, that's all I have. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know what I would do differently if I, you know, won the lottery a few, few weeks ago and was a billionaire now or something. I have no idea what I would do except to kind of encourage that conversation 
to encourage more recognition of the fundamental rights of the individuals who live in this society, to invite more and more people from the world to join this society and to be productive, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and learn so much from, from what they have to offer uh, to us. And so open the world, open our eyes, uh, open our, our uh, hearts to new relationships. Um, and so it's a positive thing. Say yes to the wonderful, you know, mosaic of a cosmopolitan liberal society. And so that's, that's what I hope. So as a liberal in March 2021, it's pretty difficult to be optimistic about the present, much less the future. You write that you're you have pessimistic optimism about the future. Last question, give people a, a reason to be excited, to remain optimistic in, in light of all of the threats that we've just talked about and all of the ones that didn't even come up. Okay, so in spite of various different uh, difficulties, from, two, from 1980, to 2015, the number of people that were living in extreme poverty throughout the globe fell drastically. So that for the first time in human history in 2015, less than 10% of the world's population was living on less than $2 a day. This is a modern miracle that should be celebrated. We are lifting people from that drudgery that I, that I was talking about, that's emancipated by, and that existed in a world when we didn't allow free trade and free migration to be universally adopted. That existed in a world where we actually had the free mobility and the, of labor and capital and uh, 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 to be somewhat, and of goods and services to be still stymied by protection, by you know all kinds of things like that. So imagine what would happen if we allowed for the complete opening up of our, our society and, and, and the, the globe to the migration of capital and labor and how all of that would happen. So that's one. I think that the promise of an open society is far greater than we can even wrap our heads around. And what the biggest promise of that is be, why we can't wrap our heads around it is that, as Matt Ridley says, innovation is the, uh, a freedom is the parent of innovation and uh, the, uh, uh, well, excuse me, how do I put this? So yeah, innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. Think about that, right? So permissionless innovation gives rise to this amazing uh, cornucopia of goods and services and wealth creation that is just, you know, phenomenal when we've seen it even in partial forms. And so I think that the, the, uh, the liberal openness will also mean that we'll be open to various experiences and experiments in living, that we will respect one another's fundamental rights to love and live wherever they want and love whoever they want. Uh, and, and that opens up all kinds of possibilities for people as well. And so to me, the pessimism is our desire to want to have a parent. The optimism is in uh, us embracing our aspirations to be free individuals. Okay. And this battle between our desire to not have to make decisions 
and our desire to be somebody that we currently aren't, but someone better that we envision for ourselves. Um, that is what's going on. And I think that the more evidence we can show about the benefits of openness to everyone and more generalized sharing of prosperity for openness to people, then the greater the chances are that we will become more open. And so I'm not, so this is like, you know, Kant's, I end with a play off of Kant's, uh, you know, essay on uh, uh, for a perpetual peace. And, and the idea here is, is not utopian in the sense that I dream that people are all of a sudden gonna become better than who they are, but it is to try to articulate a vision of a institutional framework which embraces this openness to the possibilities of human interaction that will generate great peace, prosperity, and you know, human betterment. So that's the hope. And that's where we're gonna to have to leave it. Pete, thanks. This has been a really fun conversation. The book is The Struggle for a Better World. It's out soon from the Mercatus Center. Thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, thanks again for giving us a, a reason to be optimistic about the future, Pete. Well, thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.